Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from the most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. My guest in this episode is Willie Maley, a Glasgow academic and writer who is currently Professor of English Literature at the University of Glasgow, where he has worked since 1994. Willie has lectured and published on a wide range of Renaissance writers, including Spencer and Shakespeare, and on modern Irish and Scottish writers such as James Conley, James Joyce, Teresa Devey, Marina Carr, Leila Abulela, Peter Mullen, Janice Galloway, Irvin Welsh, James Kelman, Alistair Gray and Muriel Spark. While his writing is not confined to academic work, however, he's also a playwright, a poet and a journalist. He founded the prestigious Creative Writing Postgraduate Programme at the University of Glasgow with Philip Hobsbawm back in 1995. And to paraphrase the words of a song celebrating his famous football namesake, the legendary Celtic manager, Willie Maley has brought some great names to the literary game. Two of Willie's plays, From the Calton to Catalonia, co-written with his brother John, and The Lions of Lisbon, written with Ian Auld, have had recent reprints and revivals, with further public performances of these and other plays in the pipeline. Willie, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. Pleasure. You are a man of letters, of course, so I think people will be interested to, to see what your, your choices are the, the, in this episode. But one thing, the first thing I was always curious about, given, you know, 25 years at University of Glasgow, you were, you were obviously involved in academia before that, and can you read for pleasure, or is there always a, an aspect of it where it's, it's part of it's always work, or can you differentiate I can still read for pleasure, much less so because you end up reading to teach, especially the further you get into the profession. Everything you read, you begin to think, wait a minute, is there an article in this? Is there a seminar in this? Is there a lecture in this? And there's another thing, which is there's reading the odd book for a lecture or a tutorial or a seminar or or a course syllabus, which might be 10 or more texts. But I work in the 16th and 17th century and that might involve reading hundreds of things, hundreds of publications, not all uh, literary, not all creative, political pamphlets and so on, a lot of plays. So you read a lot that's you, that's for your teaching, but you're not specifically teaching, but it's still not quite reading for pleasure, although it gives me a lot of pleasure to hang around in the 17th century. I've loitered with intent there for, for a good few years now and, and you see a lot and you see a lot of, I don't know, you read a lot that makes you realise the 17th century isn't that far away from ours at all, you know. So from that point of view, I think it gives you a kind of big picture, long view. But yes, you're right, the spaces that you read purely for pleasure shrink. Even to take an example, Stephen King, who I've always read for pleasure for 40 years, but I supervised a PhD on Stephen King's short fiction. So that kind of got it into work. And also started to read some Stephen King novels at that time, in Martland, which I'd never did with a Stephen King book, with a view to, I might write an article on this. I might write an article on Stephen King's representation of violence against women or of women in Gerald's Game, in Rose Madder, in Dolores Claiborne. So I started to think of potential academic work coming out of Stephen King, and I was probably one of the first people to supervise a PhD on Stephen King. That was Will Napier, who was a creative writing student, a very good writer in his own right, as it were. So... The spaces for reading for pleasure shrink, but now I'm back to reading Stephen King for pleasure. 
and now and again I get a book recommended to me and, and, I, and I read it and I try not to think of it as teaching fodder. I suppose that may be the exciting thing that you maybe start off reading a book for pleasure but then before you know it as you say maybe you're supervising a PhD or you're teaching a course on it you're writing an academic paper on it it just gives you a different slant on yeah. things that maybe other people would just be reading as a novel itself yeah that's interesting though because my, my supervisor Lisa Jardine once described herself to me as a kind of negative critic by which she meant that she didn't like fan fiction so she didn't like writing about things that she really enjoyed and liked because it can be a bit bland and so-so. Whereas if you're writing about things that really annoy you, then that's something you can get. You're, you're going against the grain. You know, it's a bit like John Milton. He spent most of his life hating the British imperial monarchy and writing against it. And that's where a lot of that creativity came from. So, yeah, sometimes writing about what you like is something to be avoided, you know, because it, it comes across as, as puff or blurb rather than real critical Engagement, so being encouraged and ha- or having to, literally having to, which you do when you teach, you have to read things that you wouldn't otherwise read for pleasure, and that's because you're paid to do it, and that can be good for your for the critical side of your mind. Now, in, the, in terms of the, the structure of the, the podcast, I ask each of the guests it's the same five questions, the same five categories, but obviously there'll be wildly different uh, answers. So the first category is really your favourite book from childhood. Yeah, and it's, a diff- it's always a difficult question because you have to think yourself back into your childhood. And my childhood reading was not complicated, but it was kind of triangulated between the local library and what we could read in there, in which you were confined as a child to the junior section, what you got at school, which was probably a mix of what was available and what teachers were passionate and enthusiastic about, and then this third category, which was the richest by far, which was my father's books that he brought in from the book exchange and said you've got a week to read them and then they're going back so we plundered all of that material that we never owned those books they were only on loan to us they were only in the house for a short time sometimes they smelled sometimes they had these little beasties crawling about them and that was a really broad spectrum some classics that were abridged and unabridged some books that would have been considered adult books like The Godfather I mean who can read The Godfather at the age of 10 or Harold Robbins but my father brought books in and out the house and we read them, and we read avidly. So I think those li- between library books, school, what we got to school, and that home reading, I think that was quite a rich reading, and it made me anything but a snob. I've always hated snobbery. I think it's the least intellectual thing you can possibly conceive of, and yet we still get literary snobs, intellectual snobs, so-called. They're really just snobs. And, but reading right across the board, non-hierarchically, and just not judging, not saying, well, this is written by somebody posh with a degree from Cambridge, it must be good. This is written by somebody who was a minor or whatever. So just reading across the board, I think, was very good for my reading habits. And that affected this first choice. Yeah, which so what, what, what brought you to, to Sons and Lovers then? Well, Sons and Lovers, I mean, I, I was a, a big admirer of, of D.H. Lawrence. And like a lot of other writers, like other books that I've picked today, I was too young to read Sons and Lovers. I'm from a big family, I'm the seventh of nine children, I had five older sisters, but that also affected the reading because you've got more grown-up records, more grown-up books in the house around you, and I'll, I'll say a bit about that when I come to talk about uh, teenage or formative years books, but in my childhood we read a lot of what would be the kind of literary classics, they come in and out of the house, and I was the seventh of nine children and I was a mammy's boy, I was a mammy's boy big time, but when you're one of nine and your mother works, 
your father works. You don't get the time with your parent and other people in kind of a ideal world that you might see in the TV and so on. The Waltons was the only thing I could watch on the TV that remotely reflected my family. <laughs> so life. You, all, you all shout good night yeah, to each other. Exactly. <laughs> Everything else was a complete and utter fabrication. It was it was fantasy land. So reading Sons and Lovers, which is about this Paul Morrow, and it, I, I was I was often in, interested in these kind of a portrait of the asses as a young man type stories. What age were you of interest when you actually read it for the first time? I think either ten or eleven. Right. It was while I was at primary school, but it touched me massively. And even though I didn't quite understand it, things appeal to you for some reasons that are, that are selective. And for me, it was about the relationship he had with his mother. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that reached out to me in the book. And I found it very moving, although I couldn't understand quite why that was. But as I say, I used to get a lump in my throat thinking about my, my, my mother. And I remember going to school as a very small boy, you know, feeling that. Yet, yet, as I say, if you're one of nine children, you simply don't have the access to your parents that an only child would, would have. Because it's interesting to see your, your choice of sons and lovers. And I did a podcast with Chris Dolan, the writer who, who, who we both know. And when I'd said to him at, at school, it was... At teenage years, I'd chosen, it was Catch-22, that the boys in fifth year at school were given, and the girls were given Sons and Lovers. So in my head, yeah. uh, the teacher had obviously equated that with a book for girls, which, yeah. which again is such a strange yeah. thing to, yeah. to genderise yeah. I mean, D.H. Lawrence is one of the great pioneers of working-class fiction. He died very young, he wrote some incredible novels. He dropped out of fashion for a period, I think, maybe in the 70s and 80s, but for an older generation of academics, it was essential and they broke the the people like Levis broke him into the the canon because people were a bit snobby and, and snooty about him. He wrote an amazing book called Studies in American Literature. I think it was published in 1921 about the fact that we weren't reading American literature properly because we were seeing as children's stories things that were really just adult in another country, as it mm-hmm. were. So he was a very very clever critic as well as being a, a fantastic writer. But no, that book. I mean, there's other books of his that that, that impacted on me. But that one was one, and it's because of that, the relationship with the mother, that touched me. Because, and perhaps because it was something of an intensity of connection that I wanted, but couldn't have in my big family where necessarily all relations are diluted and you're living up a close with 60 other people in a street with a few hundred people and there isn't, no, there isn't really that sense of intimacy. But one thing I always knew about was poverty. When I was a wee boy, I was looking out the window one day and something came on the TV and it was a song. It was a bit like the Ralph McTell Streets of London song, except it wasn't. It was a song called Honeysuckle Lane and it was a song about poverty. And as I looked out the window and listened to this song in some BBC daytime programme, probably about 1966 or 1967, I became aware of the fact that not everybody lived in a ghetto or a slum. And that being poor, you know, was something that was actually that I didn't. You didn't see that. I didn't see that much of it on, on TV. And when I did, it was always somewhere else a long ago. But looking out the window and hearing Honeysuckle Lane, I really connected with that. And it was a bit like that moment of recognition when you realise you're one of the the poor people. And certainly reading Sons and Lovers, yeah, there was something about squalor and aspiration which really struck home to me, and it, and it connected with me. And I, I would say, yeah, I was, I was reading adult books earlier than most people would have done just because I didn't have the kind of a censorship or, you know, schooling. You go to school and it's a riot, so you read somewhere else. And getting books for the library, I did get books, obviously, from my mother. mother. I famously remember getting her Dombey and son, Charles Dickens, and then years late using her card. And years later, finding out that Charles Dickens had actually been in Postle Park and had stayed at Postle House, which was the big house there before the scheme got built in the 1840s. So there's all these connections, but certainly the library's important, school's important, 
But just in the nature of the thing, it was my father bringing in those books from Gilmore Hill Book Exchange, ironically, long gone now, mm-hmm. but, but just up at the university, that gave us a real access to, to literature of all kinds, of all kinds. I mean, Ivanhoe, you know, all, all, all the classics, sometimes a bridge, sometimes not. A Tale of Two Cities I read when I was far too young to read A Tale of Two Cities. I remember the photograph and the, 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 the kind of a whatever classics series it was and the, the, the cover. And I knew it was a kind of scary book because it was beheading and, you know, some, something about guillotines and so on. And it, I vividly remember lines. I remember the opening lines of that book. I remember the closing lines of Charles Dickens' Hard Times because things just came through to you. So obviously you were reading in a kind of a, not everything here can be understood straight mm-hmm. away by me. I was too young. So I was, I was what would be called a precocious reader. So yeah, Harold Robbins. I mean, people talk about Harold Robbins disparagingly who have never read Harold Robbins. And I think a prerequisite for talking about anything is, do you know what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. When I worked in the library, I read a Mills and Boone because I decided to read one, in it, one of everything so that I knew, you know, the sexting in page 117 and so on. And I read The Silver Arrow, that was my Mills and Boone. So I think, you know, know what you're talking about, read widely, and then you'll know, you'll know what books appeal to you and you'll be able to challenge people when they you know, dismiss out of hand stuff that they've never read. You mentioned, obviously, jumping on to your, your teenage years. I'd mentioned briefly Joseph Heller, Catch-22, is, is a book that I remember from my teenage years. Mm. But when you chose your, in the second category, what was your kind of teenage formative years? It was something happened Yeah, Joseph Heller. Now, something happened to me, which is between the ages of 14 and 19, more or less entire, entirety. I had a very bad adolescence, and I was mostly depressed, most of the time depressed, I was a couple of times on on tranquilizers and so on. Had one very half-hearted attempt in my life, and during that time, I read avidly. And one of the things I read was "Something Happened" by Joseph Heller. And Joseph Heller's "Something Happened" is about the menopause. It's about the male menopause. It's not about adolescence. It's about the menopause, but it has that same air of gloom and regret that I felt hung over my own life. So reading "Something Happened," and it's also it's funny. I mean, the other books I read of his. Catch-22, wonderful, good as gold, maybe even funnier than Catch-22, but something happened, just spoke directly to, to me. I recommended it to somebody else who said it was too depressing to get past the first 30 pages, because it's that idea of something happened, something went wrong somewhere in life, and, the, and that's why the rest isn't working out. So I thought that was an absolutely wonderful no- novel. But as I say, I, as an adolescent, I read this novel of the male menopause, because it seemed to speak to my life as it, as it was. And it was actually a book full of disappointment and regret of a man looking back, looking back to two moments in his life. The moment when he met his wife and got involved and settled down and had a family and so on, and is kind of a, in this job which is secure, but where there's a lot of bullying at his place of work. It's a familiar theme. But also looking back to this, not unrequited, but unconsummated relationship at his workplace when he started work. So it's kind of looking back, you might say, over uh, 30 or 40 years at the life, his name's Bob Slocum, and I just found it so rich, so appealing, and so strong. And I was so pleased later in life when I found out it was Joseph Heller's favourite, not own favourite novel. I mean, did you read it? Obviously, at a time it obviously spoke to you for, as you say, yeah. for what was going on in your life. Did you revisit it at any other point in your life, and did it I have did a different a impact on you? Yeah, I read it. Probably read it when I was about forty-seven. So I probably read it about thirty years later, and I thought it was just as good. It didn't speak to me in the same way because you're not an adolescent anymore with those mm. same senses. And then I could suddenly see what it was actually about. It was a bit like I was kind of re-educated because that happened. You experience a bit one way, then you go back and say, "Oh, I never, I never saw that. I never, I never noticed this 
beginning the book, but that was his favourite book, because I always say to people, my favourite book of Muriel Sparks is The Driver's Seat, and that's her favourite. So I like the fact that I seem to be able to pick writers' own favourite books, and they're sometimes ones that people who are familiar with the work haven't read. But Something Happened is an extremely rich book. It is gloomy, but if you're going through a sad spell and can understand what that means and understand what disappointment means then and what regret means, then I think that's it's, it's really strong. You mentioned Muriel Spark. I mentioned Muriel Spark in that intro on you, and that takes us seamlessly onto the third book. And I was always, when I was asking you to do this, this was one of the categories that intrigued me, because I think people, even listening so far, will, will realise how widely read and how well read. And as you say, there's no book snobbery. You read a book, you know, don't judge a book with a cover, you read the book. So I wanted to know what book you would recommend to anyone, and it's obviously one of the Muriel Spark. And it's not you're just that you, you like us, right? You, you are an expert. I have yeah. sat and listened to a lecture that you gave yeah. uh, as well. So why The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie? Well, I've read Muriel Sparks' 22 novels, 41 short stories, all her poetry, all her essays, all her biographies, and her one full-length play as well as her short radio dramas. So why this novel? Because it's not my favourite. So I think when I looked at this question, I focused on the anyone. I focused on anyone and I thought, well, there's no point in me saying Portnoy's complaint. So I thought of anyone. Mm. I thought of a book that would that, that really would appeal, that you could read at school and you could read much later. Now, a girl in my class at school who now, I now think was very much like a Muriel Spark character, and maybe even Sandy from Prime Machine Brody, used to say of our you know, little bright group of kids, were la creme de la creme, because she had read Prime Machine Brody and I had not. It was not one of my teenage reads. It was not one of my school reads. If we got it at school, I was off that day. So I came to Muriel Spark a little bit later. And what I realise now is there's so many layers to Muriel Spark that can she, re- she can be read by the great-grandparents and the great-grandchildren. And that's a strength. So when I said anyone, I said, there's a book that's about all kinds of things. It's about fascism, poverty, gender, politics, class, Scotland, the world. It's so rich and so short and so quick and so beautifully poetic but you, could, you can give it to a 10-year-old, you could give it to a, to a 100-year-old and, and hope that they would get something out of it. So that was my, my impulse there. Because I was wondering, you know, we were chatting right at the very start and you know, asking you about you know, maybe a book that you start reading for enjoyment, but then it, you, you know, your horizon's broaden in terms of what you can do in terms of academically with it. But was there an excitement, as you say, you came to Muriel Spark later and, and what was the first Muriel Spark novel you read? But then you're thinking, I've just discovered this treasure trove of literature. Yeah. Probably the girls of slender means, and as I say, she 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 was somebody who always saw herself as a poet, and she wrote these amazing poetic novels. I mean, they're short novels, with one exception, maybe two exceptions. They are almost like novellas, or stilettos, and uh, that became her style. So, girls of slender means probably, and then Memento Mori and, and Bachelors. Memento Mori was one I almost suggested because it, we're all going to die. We're all going to die, and it's something that we never really think of. And I think Memento, Spark thought about it most of her life. She converted to Catholicism at, at the age of 39. Would that have been the novel that I mentioned that you gave a lecture on? I, I, gave a, I gave a lecture on The Takeover, the which is a different one. I've never lectured on Memento Mori, but I would like to. But there's a, I mean, it's got so much in it, Memento Mori. I mean, it's a group of these grannies in the care home reading their horoscopes out, which is a hilarious scene because it's what, what, what awaits them is not what's in the horoscope, as you can imagine. Uh, what but, awaits all of us, yeah, probably. Yeah, and that was because her, her grandmother had, had stayed with her in her last years and for Muriel Spark and that had 
had a very profound effect on her. So she wrote about old age like nobody else I know, mm-hmm. and a theme of old. I remember uh, reading that because my wife a few years and I a few years ago made up a, a playlist of songs about being old and about being older and, and so on and what that meant. Old people have been young, young people have never been old, although some young people feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. So Prime of Mystery and Brodie, I feel, has those la- layers. It's not my favourite Muriel Spark, but in terms of recommending a book to anyone that you hope they could open later in life and find new treasures in it, that would be the line. And do you think it's interesting that that's the book that filmmakers have and, and playwrights have chosen, perhaps yeah. more than other novels, yeah. to, to adapt? And, you know, people... Yeah. Will be aware of even yeah. if they haven't read the book, they'll generally be aware of it because yeah. of, of its yeah. immersion in popular culture. Exactly, and we're all going to die, but we've also all been to school, or most of us have been been to school, and those school days, school years, that's a fantastic theme, and it also makes for something great to teach. And then Maggie Smith had this unforgettable performance in the film, so I think because of the stage adaptation, because of the film. The downside of that is it tends to have overshadowed the other 21 novels that Muriel Spark did, some of which are extremely strong indeed and maybe better than it. But, yeah, it, it captures something. And I think sometimes those novels of childhood, you know, it's a bit like when Roddy Doyle wrote Paddy Clark. He got letters from people in, in, in America saying, this is my life, because it's like this David Copperfield thing. You know, we've all, we've all been there. We've all had a childhood and we've all had those... So we, we find echoes in that. I think childhood coming-of-age stories will always find a big audience. And I think that's partly what Prime Miss Jean Brody is. It's many other things, but I think it has that forum that, that people recognise and say, right, that's at school days. As I say, I went to Postal Park Secondary, and it was absolutely nothing like James Gillespie's school whatsoever. And it, and it wasn't a, a single-set school or anything like that. But you reckon that it, it, it speaks, sometimes those things speak to you. So yeah. I think that's why I say for anyone, because I think Prime Minister and Brody, you could take it home to your mother, you give it to your worst enemy, anybody at any age, and they find something in it. And I also think it's a brilliant book on the allure and seductiveness, seduction of fascism and of power and so on, and of charismatic people who are actually quite dangerous. So I think it's a fantastic novel that you can read at any stage of your life and get something new from. Yeah, and absolutely crescent in today's world absolutely. as well. You are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Professor Willie Mealy. We're on to question number four, and this, Willie, is the, the book that I or anybody else couldn't pay you to read again. Yeah, because I was paid to read it the first time, <laughs> and, and I refused to take a fee twice for the same act. <laughs> that's a good deal. That's that, that doesn't all go well for the book. It does. And it's a, my wife said to me, I hope this author's dead. Or she will be by now. No, but the, the, the book in question is Castle Rat Rent by... Maria Edgeworth, and she's a fantastic, fascinating figure. And in this book, there's a reference to Edmund Spencer, who I did my PhD on. So there's all kinds of reasons why this book should be of interest to me. But it's awkward because when I started at Glasgow 25 years ago, they always give the new stops the, the short straw. And I get the short straw because you've got a course in the earlier period, and there's not many women authors on that course. So, but they want to have somebody on it so mm. they picked Maria Edgeworth and she, picked, this one this book was published in 1800 1800 yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's almost unreadable in some respects in other ways it's a great resource for, for graduate students or for people wanting to study the period and so on I mean it's even got footnotes and things but it's a very peculiar book and just to give you a quick instance when I, when I got asked to do this I spent an awful lot of time writing three lectures yes three lectures on Castle Rack in 1994 
I mean, I was taking glucose tablets and staying up all night to try and, to try and do this terrible thing to lecture to 350 students. And uh, it was not a good experience. But I remember sitting on a train reading it and a woman opposite said, you're not reading that for pleasure. Because she knew the book and she knew I wasn't reading it for pleasure. She knew that I was... She must have seen from your face. She knew, no, it was more that she, she knew the book was not a book for pleasure. She knew that it was a course book or textbook. Yeah. And that it was on a course. And I said, no, I'm lecturing on it. She says, good luck with that. And having said that, in retrospect, there are, as I say, there's good in it, but it was, it, was not, it was not for first-year students. It was not to be lectured on. It was maybe for a, an honour seminar on mm. Irish-Scottish literature. She was somebody that corresponded with Sir Walter Scott. She pioneered what a, a unionist would call regional fiction. But she was an Irish writer, just as Walter Scott was a Scottish writer. And uh, she maybe even inf- impacted a bit on, on Scott. He certainly admired her. But it's... Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost unreadable. I mean, I, I, I read it and I worked hard and I, and I tried to make it engaging and interesting, but I wouldn't go back there, not if you paid me. Cause one of I the, wouldn't when, take the money twice. I wasn't familiar with the book, so when I, when I kind of Googled it and I got this quote, and it's just a, it's one of those ones that kind of reminds me of, you know, sometimes when you see a quote taken in isolation yeah. from a film. So it was W.B. Yeats had said, one of the most inspired chronicles written in English. Now, yeah. that might have been bookended by... I hated this book, although it was, quote, one of the most inspired chronicles written in English, and then he then says, and you couldn't pay me yeah. to read that again. Yeah, that's very funny that he says that, because Yeats famously wrote to Robert Louis Stevenson to say that Treasure Island was the only book that Yeats' grandfather had read, and he read it in his deathbed, right. and, it, and he was a, his grandfather had <clears> been a sailor, and it, it really spoke to him. And you can see why Treasure Island would speak to people. So what I say about Prime Minister and Brodie, that you could give it to a 10-year-old or a 100-year-old, does not apply to Castle Rackrent. Mm-hmm. I would give it Castle Rackrent to a, to a 25-year-old graduate student working in a PhD on 18th and 19th century Irish studies and, and wish them well right. with it. So hopefully if there's them. anyone listening to that, it falls into that category, yeah. then this is the, the book for them. Yeah. When you were thinking about the you know the book that you couldn't be paid to read again, was that a difficult choice or did that one immediately spring to mind? Well, I tried to rule out the living for, for, for politic reasons because there's some things I don't, authors I don't like. An author who's always left me absolutely stone cold is J.M. Coetzee, who's this South African writer who's been ha- so highly lauded repeatedly that I've been back again and tried to I think to he's read. won the Booker Prize a couple of yeah, times. I, I yeah, I can't, it doesn't, I don't believe it, basically. I can't engage with it. I mean, all fiction is fiction, but some fiction is more fiction than others. And another very cold writer that I know is hugely talented and sways a lot of people is Ian McEwan. He doesn't do it for me. So there are writers that I wouldn't, having read one thing of them, I wouldn't return. I wouldn't go back for more. That kind of, re- uh, kind of reinforces but what you were saying earlier on. That idea that somebody dismisses a novelist or a kind of genre, yeah. and then you say to them, "Well, look, have you read any?" And they say, "No." no. But at least then you're kind of yeah. you've read them. You give them the chance. Yeah. But that's the beauty, I suppose, that yeah. everything's subjective. Yeah, I like right? narrative drive, and I like I like the blue collar and brown collar world depicted by Stephen King. You know, I'm not always interested in knowing what one middle-class person thinks and being stuck in their head for 300 pages. I mean, no, I've, I've been there before. I went to Cambridge for three years and suffered a lot. So I, I like to get out into the world and read other kinds of stuff. I mean, one big area for me is African writing, African novels, and I've read a lot of them, and I teach 20 of them. And I would recommend them, but, but in terms of the categories that were here, that... It, yeah. it didn't fit with any of those. I'd have been, sh- I'd have been shoehorning in. I mean, I could shoehorn in Chin Chebi's Things Fall Apart, which I think everybody should read. Yeah. But when I was thinking of a, b- a book that I would recommend to anyone, 
then I was thinking of those all ages now. It's one of those. It's one of these podcasts where if we recorded this again tomorrow, you might have five different yeah, yeah, choices. Okay. You know, because it's, it's you'll go you'll go home and you go. Yeah. I should have said this one. I should have yeah. said that. But that's again that's that's the beauty of absolutely of, of books. Yeah. You're, you've never got a definitive. It is. And the thing about having five older sisters when you grow up, for example, as a teenager, is the music in the house is not just your mother and father, because my mother and father were in their 60s. My father turned 65 when I was 12, and that meant two things. It meant my father's music was not the Beatles or Bill Haley. My father's music was Al Jolson and Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra. So I had access to that. And then I had five older sisters who were into different things, Motown and you know rock, different kinds of rock, prog rock and so on. So it is changes you, get, you. Is that where you yeah. get your dancing shoes from? Because I've, I've seen you on a night out and you're you are a good mover. It's, where, it's where I get all my connections, the way that different things really do connect. I uh, like Genesis and Peter Gabriel goes in. Peter Gabriel leaves and then I like the jam and then Peter Gabriel has Paul Weller playing on one of his albums. So everything joins up. And if you're not a snob, that is if you're not ignorant about music or literature, then you, you see that a lot of things connect that you might imagine not connecting. Mm-hmm. And, and a, so popular, so-called popular fiction has always interested me. I love narrative drive. I mentioned the, the PhD in Stephen King. That was by a writer called Will Napier, and I think he had a real gift for narrative. And I've had other creative writing students that are technically very gifted, but in the end didn't didn't move me, didn't affect me at all. Because I, I, which I always like to use that the paraphrase the, the the Celtics on the Willie Mealy song about bringing great names to yeah. the literary game. Because obviously you share that that famous name. You Bill mentioned Will Napier. He was one of the ones. There's, there's a whole collection of. Yeah. Rachel who, yeah, Rachel Seifer, Louise Wells, Zoe Strachan, yeah. Rog Glass, just various people have gone on yeah. to have you know careers in literature. Who and often if you go back and you read any interviews, they kind of cite you as one of the influences because they obviously went through that course yeah. when you were on it, yeah. and, and it was a, a big help. And that must yeah. be there must be an element of pride as well of, of you kind of see them in the, those burgeoning talent, yeah. and then they actually blossoms. Yeah. You can't take false credit because the best writers sometimes come to you half ready and mostly prepared and then some of these writers I didn't personally tutor. So I personally tutored Rachel Seifert who did her Masters and a PhD with me and Will Napier who did his Masters and then a PhD with me. Other, I couldn't, can't take any credit for, for, for Louise Wells who is dragging any of these writers at all. Having said that, what the, I think what one of the things that Louise Wells said at one point was just being together, if you're from a working class background and suddenly you come together with a group of writers, you begin to get that professionalisation that middle class people take for granted because it's something they get from the cradle. So I think just bringing together a group of people, and that's what Alice Array said about Philip Horsbaum, he brought people into the same room who were writers and they learn maybe more from each other and for, yeah. for, for working and comparing notes than they got from, from, from Philip. And the same is probably true of me, so I would have to take a step back from myself as it were, and say... I can't take credit. Some some of those writers, and maybe not, maybe the ones that had something that, that didn't that lacked confidence got some confidence from me because I always, always believed that anybody anything was possible, and I did persuade writers to to, to send stuff away to publishers and to apply for grants. They got the grants, they got the publishers, and so I did something in terms of that giving that push to people that lack confidence because it was something I could recognise because not being middle class myself, I realised that you, you didn't have any confidence bought for you and you had to kind of make your own way in the world and advance on merit rather than money, which is a very difficult thing to do. Because one of the things, obviously, I'd mentioned, you, you know, you're, you're a poet, you're a playwright, obviously written a lot of academic work. You used to write a, a column for the, the Celtic View magazine, of which I'm the editor, uh, for a good two or three years. And I know over the years you and I have spoke about you've got you know 
loads of ideas for a novel. I'm always I'm always surprised that you haven't because because of your your background and, and the knowledge, but also the fact you've got these. You've told me some of these great ideas, and I'm, I keep thinking one of these days you're going to phone me up and say, right, the book's coming out, come along to the book launch. Yeah, I could have been a contender. Always <laughs> like a Philip because Philip Hosborn wrote four four that I know four collections of poetry in his late twenties, early thirties that I read and I thought were really accomplished. But there he was in his 60s saying, you know, I could be walking around with a bestseller in my head, but I can't get it out because he's got too many essays to mark or other stuff to do. It's a very consuming profession, academia, and it gets more and more consuming. You don't, you don't get more staff, but you get more and more and more students and more and more and more work to do and admin and so on. And there aren't, it's like there's not the spaces for, create, for, for the, the creative side. There aren't the spaces for reading for pleasure either. So that's a kind of complicated thing, but so so yes, I've had in my head at various times plots or ideas, but I've ended up looking like David Brent, you know, sitting and saying I could do this, or this is how this works, and so on, and it's just kind of sad. On the other hand, I get so much for academic writing. I met Bernard McLaverty one day, and we was talking about write, you know, that was I going to write or was I writing myself? I think it was after I published a poem about my father, and I said, well, I have published, I published these academic, I published these academic essays or critical essays, and he kind of looked at me, and I. No, that's not real writing way. But it's true that if you're always publishing, which I am, I'm always publishing. I pu- just published an essay on Teresa Devi, a deaf Irish playwright, remarkable writer, and I'm working on another one on her. So if you're always publishing, it, it kind of earths some of your creative energy and it certainly makes you feel as if mm-hmm. you're right. You're always reading, you're always writing, you're always publishing. I mean, I've published a lot. In, I suppose there's the poetry then, balance, you know, like maybe you're not going to sit down and write the novel, but yeah. the, I mean, you're quite prolific as a poet in, over these last few years as well, aren't you? If only I was, but I think I've, I've, I've written a couple of poems. I wrote two poems for, on Tommy Burns that, that I'm pleased with and that I, I like doing, I'm glad I did. And at different times I thought, maybe I should take some of those ideas I had for novels and turn them into poems because writing short stuff is a good thing I've got a blog now and I'll talk about it when I come to talk about the next mm-hmm. question But I, so maybe that'll be a retirement thing maybe it'll be posthumously published reminder that we're all going to die so at the moment I'm, I can live with not being a, a novelist not being a writer, if I'd gone in a different direction 40 years ago 30, uh, yeah 40 years ago if I'd gone in a different direction and, and not gone to uni who knows what might, might have happened mm-hmm. because write, writer was something I wanted to be more than teacher but then you go down, it's a slight, a swing door thing, you go down another exactly, path yeah. and you make a choice, you know. Something, so we are, ha- something happened, basically. Yeah, so we are on to the, the fifth and final question, and that's either the book, the last book you've read or the book that you're, you're currently reading, and it's a book called Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah, and I decided to cheat here, because the last book I read was Milkman by Anna Burns, and for a variety of complicated reasons, I don't want to talk about that book right now. So that was the because 2018 Booker aye, Prize winner? Aye. I don't want to talk about it just now because because I haven't thought through in my head what I liked about it and what I didn't like so yeah. much about it and because I might write something on it and because I was kind of prompted to read it by the fact that I've got several students who are very engaged with it. So it's too too early to say basically with that book what I would say about it. But the book I did read, I did this DNA test a couple of years ago called 23 and Me. That, that my wife suggested I do and one of the things that came out was I connected with a cousin that I've never met I've never seen her picture she's not on social media we've only connected by email and she lives in New Mexico but we formed a kind of miniature book club where I suggested some books to her she suggested some to me and we really only know each other through her family connection that her great grandparents were with shared great grandparents on the, on the Irish side and 
she suggested some stuff that Adida suggested something to her and the last thing she suggested that I read I mean I read this book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson and I found it a very religious book and then it surprised me that my, that my cousin in, in the States was not particularly inclined that way but you know so it was, just one, but it was a book that everybody was sort of reading and she's yeah. a Pulitzer Prize winning author and then I read the, this other book called Tuesdays with Maury and Tuesdays with Maury is about a, a student Revisiting a professor that he had who was very influ- influentially inspiring. So this student has grown up and they're a, a successful sports writer in their forties, and they've got but they've got problems in their life. And they real- hear that their old professor is dying, and they, and, and they, they watch a program about him about how he's facing up to death and so on, philosophising about it. And then they get involved in his end of life care, and they spend Tuesdays with him. That's why it's called Tuesdays yeah, with so Morning. Is it Mitch Auburn's Mitch author? Auburn, and yeah. I think the, the professors is it. Motor neuron disease. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah. So, it's, from, yeah. so he's, he's, he's going to get to the stage where he can't wipe his own arse, mm-hmm. and, and somebody's going to have to do that. And, and it's whether this, how, how intimate and close you can get to somebody, and how you feel about somebody. Now, an interesting thing about it is, Rog Glass loved work, loved working with Alistair Gray when he wrote the biography. Yeah. And I think for Rog, there was a grandfatherliness about Alistair Gray. My grandfather's died in 1929 and 1965, respectively. I've never had a grandfather figure in my life or a, or a grandfather figure need in my life. Never. I've never looked in anybody of that ilk at all, except maybe when I was 17 and started working for Strathclyde Roads Department and a guy who was close to retirement was like the nice version of my father, so somebody who wasn't angry a lot and, and, and had a bit of time for me. But the, the, the chooses with Maury is interesting because it is clearly about this guy who has this kind of a... It's not a father substitute, it's more like a grandfather substitute, and kind of begins to look at his own life through this death of this older man. So that's the last thing. It's the last book that I read that I wouldn't write about and, and so on, and I wouldn't praise greatly its literary style. I can see why it would have very broad appeal and again, we're all going to die. So, memento mori it appeals to that. Is that, that the theme of this sense. podcast? Because this the is the podcast. It's a phrase you can say. I've enjoyed saying it lately because I know people are working on end of life philosophy and end of life care, and I think it's a, it's quite a big topic. But as I say, that that book, in some ways, was very very strong. I had one moment of disappointment in the book, and that was at a certain point I was convinced this mori didn't have children that Maury didn't have children and it was somebody who'd kind of devoted his life to mentoring and supporting being an academic halfway through the book I nearly dropped it and fell off my horse because I realised that Maury had children and they just hadn't really they just flitted onto the scene and then off again they they lived it but they came and so they were part of that life and that made it look different because it changed the whole kind of surrogate son kind of thing for me, plus as somebody who's childless myself, my connection with Maury changed midway through the book yeah. when I found out Maury was a was a father and not just a surrogate father. But I, I would still say that was that that was a book. It was good to be reading something that I absolutely know that I won't write about, that I won't teach, and so on. I would recommend it to to, to people, despite the fact that it not been of astonishing literary quality, because I think it does raise some. Issues about the, the kind of a realness and, and proximity of, of, of death and what getting old means, you know. As I mean, are you, sister, very, are you very conscious of that? I mean, obviously, I'm conscious of the I'm being funny, but my, I'm being I'm, but, well, I'm, I'm probably increasingly con- conscious of it. I absolutely do not believe in God. I just say that up front. Because you and I have known each other for a long time. Yeah. We, are, we have aged well, but I'm only saying that because yeah. it's an audio podcast. But yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what Bette Davis said? My sister quoted this on Saturday. She says, Bette Davis said, growing old. It's not growing old and isn't for sissies. 
grown old isn't for sissies. That's what Bette Davis said. It's not for the faint-hearted. Or, or Leonard Cohen's line, I think, was you know he was asked about death, and he said it's not it's not death that that, that worries me. It's the preliminaries. And I mean, uh, do you think you know in terms of in the context of books, are you as you're getting older and obviously you're aware that we're all going to die one day, as you as you keep telling <laughs> me, unfortunately, but. Are you conscious of the fact that you know you might run out of time before you read everything you want to read, or is that just you, you accept that there's an inevitability that's just that's an impossibility? Now you've raised a really important question. That question is the idea of stopping distance. Now I remember when I was younger, an older academic said to me, you know, when you get to a stage where you know you're not going to have time to do all the things that you made a list of and wanted to do when you were thirties and forties, and I absolutely can relate to that. I'm sixty next year, as I'm fond of telling people, even though I'm only fifty at the moment, but I'm sixty next year. And uh, I do think, well, there's so many projects that you can do. And then there is the thing of some people want to work on till their latter years. I mean, a colleague of mine went to the States and heard M.H. Abrams present his latest findings. And I said, what age is M.H. Abrams? 97. I said, I'll be presenting my latest findings in the care home in my early 70s, probably, to, the, to, to my carer. So there is that thing of, do you want to go past the stopping distance of retirement? It's, and a lot of academics do that, just as a lot of writers yeah. do that. Philip Roth and others, you know, they'll work. They'll do what is their work late into their life. But there's so many things that when you're a full I've been a full-time academic for 25 years, so many things that get shelved and that put aside and family time and time with friends and so on, that really is that what you want to spend your retirement doing is more of that. I would, I would have to think seriously about that. And I th- so I think then you have to say, how many working years do I have and what are the, the things I really want to do? And then you front load the things you really want to do and you try to do more of the things that, that, that interest you. Because you get buffeted a bit. You get asked to do a thing and you do it and that becomes the thing you do. And then you get asked to do another thing you do it and that becomes one of your yeah. specialisms. So there's a sense of you, you're not controlling the narrative. So I just wonder if that habit of, even if you kind of start to unwind in terms of your professional life and, and just spending time doing other things, that you'll still have it, be in that habit or that zone of you'll be reading something, maybe just sitting in some Spanish cafe yeah. and you'll think, this would make a great paper. That might never leave you. Yeah, I've thought about that because I thought if I win the lottery, I'd like to be a kind of theatre impresario, you know, <laughs> and, and fund productions, not just of my own plays, but of, of many things, you know. I would I would get a production straight away of Muriel Sparks, Doctors of Philosophy, but fund a big production and tour of that. So there is that thing of what, what other things might you yeah. do, and I, th- I think, I mean, I, I've, so I I've, would have put down hill walking as one of my interests in the past, and then I realised I'd never actually walked a hill. It's quite hard to see it. So hill walking was obviously an aspiration that I never got to do. So yeah, I think projects, projects, projects. I've always had so many things on the go and I'm, I'm constantly commissioned. I mean, for 25 years, maybe longer, I've always been working on somebody, something that somebody has asked me to do. I remember after De- or shortly before Derrida died, he was talking about being a commissioned philosopher. That is, he'd always responded to commissions, commissions. And I think you know you get onto a certain treadmill and that's what you do you get asked to do something so you do it you don't sit down and say blue sky what do I want to do this you get into it so I think stopping distance is important to Mm -hmm. look ahead and say how much time do I really have to do these work related things and also yeah so you need to as it were plan ahead and I think I don't want to be premature about, about it or put ideas into anybody's head but I think retirement is not something that's on your mind when you're 38 it's on your mind if you're 58 
So there are those issues. But then I'm coming into my prime. I mean, Muriel Sparks' prime, I think, started when she was about 59 or so. That could, be, that could be the next book, The, the Prime, prime, prime of Professor Lily <laughs> <Lonely laughs> Bailey. <laughs> that'll, that'll be it, and I'll be recommending <laughs> that. I'll be recommending that to anyone who'll buy it through, through my, my, my own site. But listen, Willie, it has been uh, a real joy sitting and talking to you. I know we've, we've sat and chatted over the years and it's been great just to sit and, and, and talk about this on the Read All About It podcast. Thanks very much for joining me. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.